Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... Maybe that's the mark I want to leave, is that Mr. Mouse, you know, creates an environment where a student can be who they need to be in any given moment. You know, that permission, whether they're happy, angry, lonely, whatever it is, and just know that there's someone there that if you're going to fall, you know that I'm there to catch you. Hey, it's Maria. And you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your families are all doing well and staying calm and healthy. My guest today started practicing magic as a kid and loved connecting with others through his tricks. He also enjoyed solving problems using computers and science. He encountered several twists and turns before he decided to become a teacher. While he changed his mind a few times during his education, through guidance by his mom, he never gave up. He kept going on a long journey that eventually brought him home to a private high school where he found deep meaning in his life and work. Today, as a high school teacher, he does not want his students to make the mistakes he did. He wants them to be seen for who they are at any given moment of their day because he knows firsthand that children, and especially teenagers, more often than not deal with their own struggles. In addition to science, he also teaches his students financial literacy, a skill they will practice for the rest of their lives. Our discussion gets emotional when he talks about his relationship with his parents and how his dad did not get to see him become a teacher. This is a beautiful conversation about second chances and the long way home to a place of true belonging. It is my pleasure to introduce to you today my guest, Howard Malich, who has been a teacher of chemistry and physics for over a decade. Before that, he worked as a corporate scientist until he faced a fork in the road that he decided to use to change his life for the better. For all of you who are listening and maybe at a crossroads, I truly hope that our discussion will inspire you and guide you to figure out a new way forward amid uncertainty and start making an impact in any way you may choose. Let's dive right in. Hello, Howard. Welcome to Impact Learning. Thank you, Maria. I'm glad to be here. I want to start with my favorite question. What is something you learned in your childhood that triggered your interests later on in life? So in my childhood, as I think about it, it was uh, surrounded by um, a lot of alone time. And I picked up magic, close-up magic, and uh, started to teach myself tricks. And I always wanted to uh, do the tricks for my family and I think that got me into a sense of being a performer, you know, being, you know, not on stage necessarily, but being in front of people and showing them something that they can't quite understand, uh, but they know is happening. 
but they got tired of seeing the same trick, let's say. And uh, so it started to become a little contentious as a child. We're like, oh, so they weren't exactly uh, helpful at a certain point. And so uh, I, when I think about you know, just, just diving into that and, and I think that kind of influenced me to uh, be up in front of people to, and, and connecting with them somehow. I, I couldn't say that that was led to what I'm doing now, but I've always been someone who needs to be interactive with other people. Mm -hmm. What was your thinking around uh, learning and education in your family as you were growing up? So in my family, uh, education was very important. My father, I think his level of education, I don't know if he went to college or not. As a young adult, he started to work with my mom's father in, in a tire business. You know, marriage was happening. I think my grandfather might have said, okay, I'm just going to pass this on to, to Carl. Uh, and, and that's where my father got into you know, A1 Tire Company, and then eventually he started his own. My mother, her path was going back to school. So she had finished high school. I know that. And then after we were born is when she decided to go back to college and get her accounting degree. So we had, you know, the influence of, you know, this is now the 1970s, certainly the influence of a woman going back to school, you know, making something of herself. And I saw firsthand what it was like for my mother to fight that uphill battle of the men's club. And she did very well in it. And eventually after work with a large firm and then a smaller one, and then you know, becoming a partner and then eventually having her own. And then it kind of reverted back. She had her own and then a larger place when she was starting to retire, came in and bought her clients. And, and so she sold that on. And that type of, you know, I'll say perseverance in, in my family as business owners was there. There was just that theme in my family, I guess. That's a beautiful story. I'm always, uh, I guess, impressed by women who choose to, you know, have their family, raise their kids, and then they start, like, they go back to, what, you know, advanced higher education and building their career, building a business. We don't hear many of these stories. I guess that's why I'm saying I'm always surprised and impressed because we don't hear a lot of these stories. And it's not, uh, I think, you, as you mentioned, it's perseverance, it's knowing what you want to do and being able to do all these different things, maybe in, uh, like, one after the other. And I'm always uh, super like uh, motivated when I hear these stories. Yeah, and, and so thank you for sharing. Sure, and, and because it was the accounting field in the 1970s, there was one woman at the university studying accounting, and it was my mom. You know, so when we think today, <laughs> you know, that's unheard of today. You know, so yeah. a lot of us are, you know, the old expression goes, "We are standing on the shoulders of giants," and and you know, we forget about that. Yeah. Amazing. Which subject were you interested in and what did you want to become uh, when you grew up? Okay. So the magic started to subside and I got into <laughs> computers. So in 1983 timeframe, I was one of the few people in the neighborhood to get an Apple II computer. It was the newest computer that nobody had ever heard of before. And it was $2,000 for something that you know, has a, you know, a, a, an eighth of the power of our cell phones today. And I started tinkering, uh, whether it's with, you know, the applications at the time, 
or some of the programming behind the applications. So there was the idea that I was probably going, going to go into computers. Uh, I, I didn't end up doing that, but it certainly became, I would say, a very strong hobby. And I was helping a lot of people you know, at school because computer programming started to become a little bit uh, more prominent in school and nobody had ever you know, used word perfect before or used you know, uh, a word processor before. And it was, there was no mouse. So it was all done by keyboard shortcuts. I had managed to memorize every keyboard shortcut. And so I became, you know, a very prominent in, in applications and computers. So as that was happening and I was going into college, I thought I wanted to be an actuary. Uh, I had a pretty decent math background, but I'll say, I'll say out loud on the podcast, I was not a very high achiever at that, at this, at this point in time. And so some of the statistics classes that, uh, you have to start out with taking in, in college, started to get more difficult. I started to look a little to the directions of many of the distractions that are in college, you know, with uh, drinking and drugs. And so that pulled me in a direction that made it very difficult to be prosperous in college. <laughs> uh, so uh, I kind of, I kind of hit a bottom in college as far as uh, academics and started over in a sense, I was going to the University of Illinois at the time, taking my actuarial classes. And uh, like I said, I bonded out. I went home. I started to go to a community college. And at the time, I, you know, my, my mom was very uh, helpful in saying, you know, I, I'd like you to finish college. You don't, you don't have to. Uh, she said, but I just want you to know firsthand, going back to school is an incredible uh, undertaking. She said, I did it, but I don't really recommend it. And, and so I she said, just get a degree in something. It doesn't really matter. So um, I might've said a moment ago, so I decided to pick, I would said I want to be a chiropractor. And at the time you would have to go to a separate chiropractic college and which is a, a typical four-year uh, kind of kind of thing, but they had requirements to go in with biology and chemistry. And I didn't have those yet. So I decided, all right, so I'll at a community college, I'll take some of those prerequisites. I'll take uh, uh, chemistry and um, I don't know what else I was taking, but as I was taking chemistry, I decided to go back to a university. I now um, ended up at Illinois State University. And uh, when one of the chemistry classes I was taking there, my professor, his name was Dr. House, Dr. James House. Uh, and this is, you know, 1988, 89 timeframe. I remember the lecture that made me want to be a scientist. He was talking about uh, some type of chemical reaction. And there's this compound called BHT. And I don't know the big long name for it, but he said, uh, if you look in the ingredients, it'll say BHT uh, to ensure freshness in parentheses. And he said, let me tell you what that really means. It really means to prevent spoilage. And he started, he went into the the, the reaction and what it really does. And, and he said, this is kind of a marketing tool that we, you, they use in the food industry to because if they say to prevent spoilage, oh, that sounds disgusting. I'm not, I'm not buying something with, with that in it, but it's to maintain freshness, which is the same exact thing. It's not as off-putting. So at that moment, I said, oh, I, I got to learn more about science and marketing. Really started <laughs> right there. And um, so I started to continue with the chemistry. And when the time came uh, with the chiropractic college to start applying and doing that, uh, that idea moved away really. And 
that's what my mom remind me again. Well, you, you want to finish here and you know, what do you want to finish in? And my, my joke is, you know, I, I picked chemistry because it was the shortest line of registration, but that's not, you know, that's something like that. What, what happened was, is I looked at my transcript and I had the most credits towards a chemistry degree. So I decided, okay, I'll just finish up with a chemistry degree. And it was quite a challenging curriculum to say, I guess I'll just finish up with chemistry. But like I said, I, I wasn't a highly motivated student and maybe I forced myself because I had to finish to become motivated in this area. And during the college piece, I would say my senior year of college, I'm, I'm wrapping things up, getting my chemistry degree, a bachelor's of science in chemistry. And something inside me says, I think I want to be a teacher. What was it? What, what, uh, where do you think that came from? Uh, I don't know. I think I, I always had this need to help people and explain the, you know, help, help frame up the unknown with what's known. Okay. Um, and I probably from early on with the computers, helping people with their computers. So computers was a language, right? You know, it, you have if then loops, you have it, or you have keystrokes, you know, you know, if you're in Excel equals this times this, all these, you know, the syntax. And so I had a, a, an affinity to translate the language of computers to people who didn't know or to what they knew in their language, whatever they were proficient at. And I, so with like with, with accounting, I would compare things to accounting to my mom, you know, when it came to other things, she, oh, well now I get it. And I, I, oh, I had this ability to get into somebody else's mind and understand their thinking and, and bring it together. So you wanted to become a teacher. But what did you do um, after college? What was your first job? Yeah, so in that in that time frame of when I was going to be a teacher, and, and at this point, my parents were helping me pay for college, and so and they said, "This is this is the uh, after this, this is it. You're on your own." And what happened <laughs> when I said, you know, financial these? I said I wanted to become a teacher. Well, that meant I had to do two more years of specialized learning. I didn't do so. My chemistry degree didn't include a teaching degree. So now I had to, I guess it'd be equivalent of a master's today, but I, I went and got a teaching certification uh, that the school offered. And But what was very emotional for me is I felt like I was letting my parents down that I wasn't going to be a chemist, that I was going to be a teacher. And I remember going to both of them feeling awful that I let them down, that I, I'd shifted gears, you know, and not, not really realize it. And they were both very understanding. They said, tell you what, if you want to finish the next two years, we'll cover, we'll cover some of that. And so, so that's what I did. So I got the certification. What happened was in my student teaching, I had an emotional kind of uh, experience realizing that I think I was way too young to teach high school. My, I, I don't think I had the maturity to do it. My, I was too close in age to the kids and it just wouldn't, it just wasn't the right time. And, uh, so I started to look for a job in industry. Did you uh, actually try to teach and realize that you did not have the maturity and experience or was that more of an imposter syndrome? So it, during my student teaching, as I had meetings with my advisor, the first week I was doing student teaching and it's a 10 week stint or whatever. So I was doing student teaching. And that first week he says, you know, normally when I get a new teacher from the school, uh, I have to kind of hold their hand for 
10 weeks. And he says, I'm after watching you in the first week, I'm not going to do that. You're, you should be just fine without me. Cause he said, I'm, I, he's an advisor on other things working at the school. And he said, I'm going to take time to do other things. Unless I hear yeah. something, here's, here's my materials. I, I don't I have full confidence. You'll be fine on your own. He said, most times I have to reteach chemistry to the teachers they send me. So I don't have to do that with you. Yeah. You know, you relate to the kids. So, but in that 10 weeks, I just was saying to myself, uh, I can't do this. I think there was just, I, it wasn't so much a uh, imposter that I didn't think I could do it. I, 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 I was being reassured that I was doing a very good job. I just don't think that I would have been able to, because what, what, I'm, I'm like 22 or 23 at this time, and they're 18, that five years. Uh, so I just, it wasn't the right time. Okay, so you uh, joined a company and you started working as a chemist. So yeah, my first job was at a place called Taylor Pharmaceuticals. It was in Decatur, Illinois. Uh, and one of the things that Decatur is kind of on the map for is uh, ADI or ADM, Archer Daniels Midland and Staley Corporation. So they may, they're the largest soybean you know, refinery in the, I don't know if it's in the United States or the world at that time. Uh, one of their taglines was, you know, we feel, we feed the world because, you know, it's all <laughs> soybeans. And uh, so I was working at a place uh, where it was a generic testing or contract testing. So, and it was all uh, perennials or injectables. I was in quality control testing and it would have to test the volume of the vials. We have to test the potency. You have to test it for, uh, you know, any stability on the shelf. Uh, so that's, that was my, my first job as a quality control chemist. And I, you know, I did that for a number of years, I would say three or four years. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you became a scientist. How did you, from a chemist, how did you evolve into becoming a scientist? And what did you like about it? Uh, so I, I more or less evolved uh, based on life's circumstances. So while I was working in Decatur, I met a nice woman and uh, our relationship uh, blossomed to a marriage. And as we were looking for jobs, I started to you know, get jobs in different places and different cities. And she would perform her job in different places, different cities. She was actually a, a weather a broadcaster on television. So uh, we were limited in that respect that if there wasn't really a broadcasting job, then we weren't going to be there. So I started to work on different types of pharmaceuticals from brain cancer treatment to uh, asthma medication. And, you know, that term scientist is, is something that will, you know, you'll see on a resume, but that's what companies will call it rather than a chemist or, a, uh, yeah. I mean, they might say organic chemist or something, but it'll just say scientist level one or scientist level two. And they, this is what we expect you should know the machinery you should use. And, and I, I, I started to work in, in the asthma medication area and with propellants. And I, th I think the most enjoyable thing was just developing new medication or researching different uh, mediums with the asthma medication. So I enjoyed that formulation aspect of it. Uh, you know, the quality control testing was fine you know, to, to pay the bills, but I think my, I had the most uh, enjoyable experience, you know, uh, the colleague of mine, uh, his name was uh, Dr. Frank Blondino, and he taught me so much about this, the analytical method, period. Mm -hmm. And how long did you uh, continue be being a researcher before you made an, another, I guess, a change, a transition into going back into teaching. So 
it was at a time and it was in 2008 when or the financial crisis was starting to hit and people were starting to get laid off. And so I kind of fell into that. And when, when that happened, uh, I decided to still look for a science, a science, a job in the pharmaceutical industry. And then my mother, uh, once again, shows up in my story. Uh, she said, well, you, you still have that teaching degree. So I, so I, I paid the, um, relicensing fee. So I had a, I had the teaching degree in Illinois. So I always kept that paid up. So it was $40 for five years. <laughs> so don't miss that payment. It was just because if you miss it and you have to start over, that's, I mean, it's going to be way more than $40 to get that going. So I always kept that going. And my mother came back to me and said, you know, you, you still have a teaching degree, right? I said, yeah, I do. And she said, well, because now I'm in New Jersey. She said, well, do you think New Jersey would honor your Illinois teaching degree? I said, they might. And so she said, maybe you should do a little research and see if you can get it, get back into teaching. So, so that's what I did. Um, and I think there was, uh, again, spiritually inside of me where it said, I think I might be done with, uh, a bench chemistry type of work and it might be time to do something else. Mm-hmm. This is a, an interesting um, part of the conversation because many people right now, as we are in the middle of another crisis, are being laid off mm-hmm. or um, they find themselves, let's say, without a job that they might have been doing for a while. And uh, I guess, do you have any insight or experience you would like to share? Because again, some people who are listening may be in this situation right now. Yes, I do. Uh, you reminded me of what what made the shift happen. So there, there was a few things going on. Sorry. W- one of them, it was in 2007. Uh, my dad passed away and that was a very tough time for me. Um, and it really affected my performance at work. So what happened in 2008 was partially financial and partially performance. I just wasn't coping well. And so, as I said, you know, something inside me spiritually was changing and I was having some financial troubles as well. And I started to latch onto the teachings of Dave Ramsey. Uh, Dave Ramsey, you know, for people listening, don't know, you know, he's a big person in the financial industry and has a radio show to help people get out of debt and eventually build back their lives financially. And uh, a lot of his teachings, there's a spiritual component uh, or religious, however you want to look at it. And So I I needed help in both those areas. So he had, as I was listening to his radio show and phone calls would come in, people want to change jobs. He recommended a book called 48 Days to the Work You Love. And I think the author is Dan Miller. I I don't remember, but so I picked up that book and I read that book. It helped me to re, you know, ask myself some questions and I, I, to inventory who I was professionally is really what it was asking me to do. You know, was I still good at being a chemist question. Yeah. Okay. But was it still, was it creating prosperity in my life? No. Okay. Then maybe I should find out what else I'm good at to create prosperity in my life. You know, so I was good at the science and I I was good at teaching. So maybe I should teach science. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. Beautiful. That that all came together. And so it, it really, it's, it's, it's very emotional for me. So as I'm pausing here, it's just, I'm trying to really hold back some tears. There's just a lot in this time of my life. That was hard. So. 
Uh, Howard, what is emotional about if you would like to share with us? The, the change I made for teaching was like the best thing I ever did. And my dad's missing out on it. I wish I wish he was here you know, to hear this conversation, to see who I've become. That's where it is. I understand. But uh, I'm not sure if this is also a bit spiritual, and I'm not sure where it finds you. But I tend to believe my dad died uh, when I was eight. So he doesn't, you know, he did not experience, you know, or, or became aware or become aware of everything that I've done. But somehow I think he knows. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the, it's combined with some regret that, man, maybe I should have started this earlier, but I wasn't ready. I just wasn't ready. So you can't, you know, you can't, you know, fast forward yes. the universe. <laughs> and what you, what you said earlier, Howard, is like, it's not the right time for this yet. No. Right. So you decided to go back. So where, where did you start teaching? And I guess you started teaching science. I started teaching at the school I'm at now. So uh, Ray Kushner Yeshiva High School. Uh, yeah, I had gone through all the paperwork, all the bureaucracy side of things. And I was a substitute teacher, uh, not too far from where I was living in uh, Hunterdon County and uh, Flemington High School, I think it was. And I was getting a few interviews and I, I would say, so Bill Landau, the, the called me in. It's, he's the science chair at uh, Ray Kushner Yeshiva High School. And uh, it was actually in the summer. It was, uh, I want to say, July of 2009. So I came in and so I did not give a model lesson to any students. It was to a couple of teachers. And Bill, I like to say, and, and you know, we, we, we both have a fondness for Seth and his work and Seth Godin and his work. And, you know, I feel like I got picked, you know, and, and, I, and I got some, some more to say about that. But uh, that he gave me a chance because here I am. Well, you've never you taught before. So, you know, yeah, you got the paperwork, you got the credentials, but, you know, in my mind, it's like, I hope I could pull it off. I hope someone gives me a chance. Uh, so he gave me a chance. And uh, personality wise, me and him were very well connected. It was, it was a great fit. I, I mean, uh, it couldn't be asked for a better person to start with and to be my mentor and just to, to guide me through so many things because, um, there's another piece that my mother had helped me out in when I was transitioning. She said, why don't we do some goal setting exercises? Uh, so in addition to the 48 days of work you love, I sat down with my mom and she, she, at this point, she has her own accounting practice. And so she does this, she does this with all her, her team members. And she says, I'd like to put down some goals, whether professional or personal, whatever it is. And so she did this exercise with me and the two things that became highlighted in that was that I wanted to be a teacher. And the other one is I wanted to be more involved in my religion in Judaism. Okay. So there are other things, but those, so I'm just highlighting those because where I end up now is at a yeshiva high school. So that's an Orthodox or modern Orthodox Judaism high school. So when I got the job, my mom says, do you remember the goal setting? Cause it wasn't, it was probably a year prior or something like that. I said, she said, these were the two things that really came out of it and look where you are. So I can't express more what a great fit it was, you know, to start out and, and again, be welcomed into an environment where I, I wasn't an Orthodox Jew, but I was, I was welcome at whatever level I practiced. And, and also I, I was talented as a scientist and now it was time to see what I had to, if I had what it took to, to be a teacher. 
So how was your experience starting teaching? And was that in high school or middle school? This is high school. So I was actually teaching the entire 10th grade chemistry. So it's a very small uh, school, student body. Uh, so I was doing the entire 10th grade and I had one section of physics 11th grade. So I started out with some, I was, I was enthusiastic, but I was defensive. Like I didn't want to be the new guy that got taken advantage of. So the way I had myself postured was, uh, like I said, a little defensive, a little unapproachable. And that was not the culture that was established there. That's not who they really want working there. <laughs> so it was made pretty clear to me in, in that sense of some of the ways I would say things or how I would say things because I was mostly working in an adult environment. And perhaps what you can say one-on-one to an adult, to a mature person, you can't frame it up the same exact way for a 15-year-old. And I was not exactly prepared for all the emotional state that happens for teenagers. Uh, they are quite a handful and, and, you know, they're, they're in a, a transition in their life. And so in general, that first year, there was a lot of learning. I spent, you know, my, my day teaching and then probably another 45 minutes sitting with, with Bill going over what the day was like, how it can be better. It was a regular accountability type of meeting on how to improve. And again, I think one of the books I had read in this time frame, either before or after, just right around here was Lynchpin you know, by Seth Godin, you know, how to make yourself indispensable. And so that was another thing that I didn't want to lose this job just because I couldn't figure out how to say something appropriately or something like that. Just silly at this point in my life. You know, if I, if I lost it because it wasn't a good fit, that's fine. But if it's because I can't manage something that's well within my control, well, that's foolish. So I, I, he worked with me completely, you know, no strings attached. He was just such a you know, great guy to work with. And so that's the first year I spent a lot of time learning how to be a teacher, learning how to be understanding and compassionate and empathetic and uh, learn that teaching in a high school setting is not about the subject for me anymore. It's so much more about the examples I can set as an adult and the way I can help someone be valuable in the marketplace. That's really how I see it now. Mm -hmm. So what do you aspire your students to become? So I would like them to become uh, people of high uh, moral character first. If they happen to do that in a setting where they can do experiments and science, that's great. But if they want to do it somewhere else, that's okay too. I don't see that I'm teaching my students to become scientists. I see that I am helping them to make themselves valuable after high school. And that's why it's just some, sometimes, oh, I don't think chemistry is my thing. I said, that's okay. This chemistry is a prerequisite to graduate. That's all it is, you know, for them yeah. at some level. Uh, you know, I'm here to make it somewhat interesting or relevant in your life. I think because I've worked as a scientist, I have somewhat of a uh, unique perspective compared to, let's say, someone who is an English teacher, but they've never written a novel or they've never been in publishing. They've never been in, you know, so I've actually been in industry. I could, I could tell you where you you might use this kind of test or where you might see this kind of reaction. And that's why over the years, I uh, learned that it's kind of some of the things that they're asked to memorize. I said, well, 
in my job, I didn't have to memorize anything. You know, I, there were always manuals. There were things to look it up. We had a periodic table. We had everything at our, at our disposal. And if I didn't know how to use the resources, that was a problem. But never did someone say, well, you, you don't know, you don't have this memorized. Never did someone say that to me. So I don't think that that skill is valuable as, as much as people think it is. I mean, it might help you do things faster, but it certainly doesn't, you know, it doesn't make you smarter, in my opinion. So my students never have to memorize anything. They have resources. They have notes if they need them or note cards. They can have any formula. I'm not, you know, and so what I want them to do is learn how to apply the resources that are available to them. And also, in many cases, be willing to be wrong. I think that's a theme that, you know, when, when I'm starting with a new topic and we're working on some questions, yeah, I've just scratched the surface on how to work some things and they're having difficulty or I'll ask a question on purpose where there's not a right answer. You know, there's a scientific concept here and just give me your explanation. You know, if you think the answer is, you know, unic we can blame unicorns. Okay. How did you come to that? That's fine. You want to be ridiculous? That's okay. How did you come to that? So, uh, and some kids have been very creative. I'm, I'm, I have to admit, it's very funny, but some of them, <laughs> they, they, they look at me because there's no right answer. And there's like, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what you're asking me. And I very transparently say, I'm asking you to be willing to be wrong. And that's very hard for them. Is it also the school uh, school's philosophy along these lines? Or is it something you, you think you bring to the table for your students? So I like to think that uh, I'm in harmony with the school's goals. I think uh, I forward you, the school has a mission statement. Uh, we're a part of a mm -hmm. New Jersey accredited, uh, independent uh, school accreditation. Mm -hmm. And as part of that accreditation, they asked us to come with a mission statement. I, I don't have it in front of me, but again, from some of the reading, I'll throw out another name I love is uh, Simon Sinek, his book, uh, you know, Start With Why, I think it is. And you know, he said, you know, even if your company doesn't have a mission statement, you can write your own mission statement. You know, And so uh, when we had one, because we didn't have one before, when we had one, I decided to make my own from what they had so you know mine is if it's basically three three bullet points and the first one is based on knowledge of chemistry or physics or whatever subject i'm teaching the other two are based on character mine and theirs you know uh we have we have values at our school based on teachings in the torah or the the, the hebrew bible and i may be you know the best example because they do a lot of learning on the because they have a dual curriculum they learn not only our secular subjects but they have a lot of religious and judaic studies and um you know studying you know the the torah and living the torah are two different things so i'd like to be an example because i'm not really a guy who studies it but i'm a guy who tries to live it and i'd rather they watch me live the values than necessarily i can cite chapter and verse where god said this or that that's my my main goal is to really be an example of an adult who's living by virtues set down by our principles of our of our religion and uh, and society. Honestly, I want to switch to something that I find very interesting. Okay. Uh, that you pioneered uh, a personal finance course that you are teaching now. So why did you start this? And why is, I guess, financial literacy essential to learn early on in life? Okay. So I didn't necessarily 
pioneered the curriculum. The curriculum is based on Dave Ramsey's high school course. So when I started to get back on my feet financially, and I got married again 10 years ago, and my wife and I decided to make sure we were going to live our lives without debt. Uh, so we paid off our cars, we paid off the house, we paid off everything. And in that process, as I was doing that, I kept asking them, you know, because I'm teaching chemistry and physics at this time, and the assistant principal, his name's uh, Howard Plotzker, I, I would go to him each year and say, would it be okay if I taught an elective for uh, personal finance? And he he looked at it, looked, I showed him the curriculum, he said, oh, this is fantastic. I, you know, I'm, uh, you know, how, how we are in a school where there's a lot of affluence, a lot of people who work in business and finance and everything that nobody said we should be, we should have a finance course for, for the kids. Cause there's some kind of assumption that it's taught at home. And I find that it really isn't. So for the first couple, I bet it was, I was there for maybe five years. And the problem wasn't that it wasn't welcome in the school. The problem is again, our student body and our, uh, how many teachers we have. So at this point in time, I'm the only chemistry teacher. So you now have this, this, you know, spinning of plates to where if, if period three, I'm not available because I'm teaching this elective, there's no, nobody gets to teach chemistry. There isn't anybody else. Okay. So once we started to have other teachers come in, science teachers, and there was a little blend where some could teach physics or biology or uh, chemistry, that's when I got a chance. Howard came to me and said, he said, Hey, guess what? I've arranged a schedule. So if you still want to do that finance class, we can do it. And I said, yeah, let's do it. So when I listened to Dave Ramsey, I, he, he says, you know, all the things he's turned around in his life, and it's been many, many years since he was, you know, financially destitute, but he, 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 his comment is, he said, God makes me teach this stuff now because I've, I've learned from it all. So I say to the kids, same thing, God makes me teach this stuff. One of the things that I love is the curriculum as it was designed for high schools doesn't mention anything spiritual in it at all. Okay. So it could be taught in a, uh, you know, secular high school, public high school. Uh, however, since I know Dave Ramsey's background, how he normally teaches it and mentions things, I deliberately put in the spiritual piece because I work in a place where I can. And it is such a benefit to be able to do that and look at some of the things that are in the Torah or other aspects of Judaic study and match them up to what we're learning financially. And for me, it catapults that when I go back to what my mom said, I want to be a teacher. I want to teach at a Jewish place. Oh, and I want them to learn from all my mistakes. And that's what I tell them. I said, you know, look, there's, I have a class of 16 kids. I said, if one of you doesn't repeat what I did, then I've served, I've served you well. You know, you, you, all of you are not going to budget when you're done here. You're, you're, you're going to get credit cards. You're going to be in debt. Some of you will not follow what I'm saying. Okay. What I want you to know is that's okay. If you, if you change your mind and want to follow it, give me a phone call. I'll teach it all back to you again. I don't care. It's a way I can give back to the community. And it turns out, uh, so the first year I was teaching it, uh, parents would come in and I talked to them and they said, this, uh, I'm so glad you're doing this. Uh, this is going to be a great for my, my son or daughter or whatever. And it just kept going. It, it, it got momentum and it is now one of the, the, the class is full, you know, I, I, cause there's only one guy to teach it <laughs> again. And, uh, I, I said to, to Howard, I said, listen, I'll teach two sections. You just, you know, I won't be able to teach as much science. So it's up to you. 
you know, what you, what you want to do, you know, and I, I probably should be careful what I ask for because he might just do it. And uh, I think they eventually would like to make it a required class as part of it. It's rather than elective. And so what I learned about finances and money is, and, and really you could branch it out into many things, is that the money's not mine. It's, it's God's and he gives it to me to manage as well as I can. And if I don't manage it well, just like if I give my son the car and he doesn't treat it well, he doesn't get the car anymore. And I think that's, that's the, the spiritual piece for me is if I, if I'm teaching you guys this stuff and if you don't manage it, his stuff, well, he's, he's going to take it away from you or he's going to limit it. So mm-hmm. I also think of money, but again, money is just one, one of the resources that we have, you know, available to us to use. Uh, Time is another one. Uh, Hmm. And then we make choices, decisions and choices every day, probably, small and big ones, to how to handle these resources, but also how to to leverage them in the way that we have more impact. That's how I think about it. Again, whether it's money or time or other resources that I have at my disposal, I think, like, my role is to just move them towards the right direction, you know, at the right pace and, and create some sort of change or impact. Like yeah. that's, that's how I think of that. And also that's why I don't get attached to money, but I see it as a resource. Yeah. So if you had the choice, if you were asked to choose between teaching, you know, the personal finance course or science, which one would you choose? Personal finance. Yeah. <laughs> And why? And why? So if they're balancing an equation where there's uh, ammonia reacting with oxygen and uh, some other, you know, and, and they've got to balance it and figure out how many grams of this or that, they may never use that skill again. I can guarantee you what I teach in, in this personal finance class about budgeting and saving and insurance and taxes, they're going to use all of it. And we have a little joke in the class that was, Someone says, uh, is there a final exam in this class? I said, yes. And it starts when you graduate for the rest of your life. That's the final exam because they will use every little bit of piece of this. And the other reason is I would like to, like I said, prevent them from doing some of the same dumb things I did growing up with money. Uh, Our family had money. Our family was not in debt. Uh, But I was like a child with money all my life until I was probably late 30s, early 40s. What other skills are essential and crucial to teach early on and we don't teach them? Uh, We may touch on them, but we don't really teach them, you know, uh, intensively at school. So uh, the things that I think that I'm teaching them are patience, generosity, timing, disposition, how they hold themselves. And I'll give you some examples. So on the first day of school, I have a list of policies and procedures uh, that I expect for the class to go well. And it is a long list of things. And many times I've been challenged, like, why do you go through all that? I said, because if you don't give teenagers information, they fill the blanks with you know, a lot of immaturity. So one of the things that I am painfully consistent <laughs> and and very transparent uh, and to the point where if they ask the question, you almost know the answer because you know who I am. Uh, there's, you know, uh, when they say, I don't think you posted the homework assignment 
And I said, I'd like you to take a look. We have 15 kids working uh, on, on the homework assignment and you don't think I posted it. Why would they be working on it? I said, does, does, do I seem like the kind of guy that doesn't post assignments? And they're like, no, I guess you don't. I said, so what do you think happened? Well, I guess I forgot to look. I said, okay. And the other thing, they like to lie before they tell the truth. So another example of that is uh, they'll say, can I go to the bathroom? Sure. They go to the bathroom, they come back and they have a calculator in their hand. So I stopped them. I said, I said, was your calculator in the bathroom? And they said, no, I actually went to my locker. I said, okay, why didn't you say, can I go to my locker to get my calculator? And they're like, I thought I'd get in trouble. I said, so you think it's better that I find now that you deceived me? And they're like, I guess not. I said, yeah, I'd just rather you tell me the truth. I said, do I seem like the kind of guy that wouldn't let you go to get your calculator? Well, no. I said, do I seem like the kind of guy that would be disappointed if you lied to him? Yes. I said, okay. And they're like, am I in trouble? I said, nope. No, I just, I just asked them questions that they, they really can answer. And the question I get a lot also is like, am I going to get in trouble for this? And time after time, they just try to stay under this radar of not getting in trouble. And it's almost to the point where, so you're not doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing. You're doing it just to get, not getting in trouble. And I want to teach them do the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing. Let's not make it about a punishment. Let's make it about you being better than who you were yesterday or, or a week ago. And uh, so I don't have desks in my room. I have uh, tables with chairs, uh, kind of like two students per table. And at the end of class, one of my procedures is, uh, please push your chair in at the end of class. Typically, I have to remind them. I say, oh, can you push your chair in? And, and if, if someone forgets, they say, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. And then somebody else says, that's okay, I got it. So it helps the others be generous and help people out. And just like, just, and I said, you're really helping me out, guys, because I have to go push them all in. That's all you're doing. You're helping me out. It's not, it's not about you. <laughs> it's just really helping me. And then a parent-teacher conference came uh, along and this, this one mom, I won't forget it. It was my first year and her second year. I don't, that I don't remember, but she came up, she said, she sits down and you know, her son is Ethan. She says, uh, I said, I said, Oh, I guess you want to talk about Ethan you know, and his, uh, his performance. She says, not at all. She says, I want to know how you got him to push in a chair. <laughs> what do you mean? She's, uh, so, you know, uh, uh, Judaism every Friday night, there's you know, dinner, uh, Shabbat dinner. And, um, and so it was just every, every Friday night Shabbat dinner, he's pushing his chair in or telling others to push your chair. How did you do that? I could not get him to do that. And, and Maria, honestly, I said, I just said to, I, I said, I just asked him, oh, I said, I didn't expect him to know how to do it. I had to ask him to do it. And she said, well, how many times? I said, I don't know. It doesn't matter. I don't mind asking again. And I think that's the other piece is that. I know that learning doesn't happen instantly. You know, learning happens, you know, uh, through repetition, through some type of rewards, through some type of, you know, and look, the reward may not be money. You, know, you got to figure out someone's currency sometimes, you know, you know, when you can figure out someone's currency, you're, you're golden, you know, and sometimes currency for a 15 year old or 16 year old is an adult who it's going to be warm and welcoming because many of them are just on this defensive posture with, with the adults. It's this us and them. 
And I keep trying to tell them, no, it's us. There is no them. Once you realize you, you, you could go try to climb up on the ladder to look down on everybody else, or you can come down to the bottom and hold hands with the rest of us. It's up to you. But the, the ladder's lonely up on the ladder. I'm just telling you. And, and I've been lonely. I've been there, uh, you know, professionally, uh, trying to climb and, and kick everybody off the rungs. You know, I mean, I'm trying to use this metaphor, but, um, you know, and in this environment at school, you know, I get to be an example, like I said, but also just create, you know, relationships that influence. And, and you said have an impact, you know, your, your title's impact learning. And I, something had an impact on me, uh, prior to all this, uh, we call it distance learning. I, I, I like our principal actually started, he says, it's not distance learning, it's emergency learning because we did this all in an emergency and out of a crisis. It's really crisis learning. You know, distance learning has been happening for a while online. Anyway, so anyway, this thing that made impact, this uh, young lady came up to me and um, <laughs> it's going to get emotional again. She came up to me. Uh, we, were, we were working at lunchtime on a, on a couple of questions uh, for physics and uh, this young lady is very religious. So she's probably much stronger in her religious and Judaic classes than she is in my science class. But she pushes herself and she does as well as she can do, even though she doesn't think so. And um, at the end of it, she says, oh, I really appreciate you taking your lunch to do this and everything. I said, oh, it's my pleasure. Is there anything else? She says, she just says, I don't know how you do this. I said, do what? And she says, this job. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? I, I, is, is, is there a problem? She says, no, no, no. This was fine. She says, but... You know, in class, one of the students who happens to be one of my friends is someone who's very difficult. And you are one of the most patient people I see with him. You you treat him, he, he, he pulls the same kind of behavior in other classes. She's like, that I've seen him, but you don't treat him like he's an outsider. You really work with him as best you can at his level. And I'm trying to compose myself with her. And I said, oh, that's very kind of you to say. And she says, well, I just, you know, when, when I see that, I really just really appreciate what you do. And she said, have a good day. She left. I closed the door and I bawled. I just, I was like, you know, I, I just never thought that, that, you know, like I said, I want to be an example, but when it, when it's in your face and you're an example and someone who, like I said, this young lady who's very you know religious and follows many things and, and her generosity and all the teachings. And it's like, when I watch her, she impresses me. And it's like, so I've impressed you. So that just kind of brought it all to this, you know, it's, it's my 10th year and at the school. And, and, and then her mom came up to me and said, you know, how she appreciated you know, what the work I've done with her daughter and stuff. And so, so that would be my currency, you know, cause you, you can't pay me, you can't give me a bonus. You, <laughs> you can do that's going to make a child spontaneously tell you how wonderful they think you are. So it's the impact you are creating. Yeah. Uh, and I think I, I create that impact not only with character, I create it with humor and I create it with understanding. I think I was listening to uh, a talk with, I think it was maybe Coach Lou Holtz and and the interviewer asked the coach, he said, so so what's it like dealing with a, a different team every year? Because it was a college coach. And he says, every year, I have a different team every week. He says, you know, this one breaks up with their girlfriend and this one isn't doing well in their classes. And this one, every week it's a, I have a, and, and so I, I really took that inside. I said, so I, I have a different class every day, <laughs> you know, with these, with these teenagers, their personalities are shifting before my very eyes. 
and I have had to teach myself to be sensitive to is when they come in the classroom and I see them and you can just tell it's not their day and they are just not in the mood for any, you know, they came a little late and, but the look on their faces, you know what? I don't need an excuse. I don't care. You must have a good reason if your face looks like that. And so I throw aside all the rules and the regulations because they are not in a moment to deal with my rules, nor the rules of anybody else. And the most important thing I can do for them is go over to them and say, hey, do you need a break from, from class? And they look up at me like, can I? I said, you can go take a walk. How long? I said, till you feel better. Because whatever we're teaching that day, they don't need that. They need a break. So after school, so I'll carry this scenario out. So after, so that, let's say that takes place. And when they get home and their mom or dad says, hey, how was school today? They could either talk about the teacher that was a real jerk to them. You know, they came in late because they were crying and whatever, and the teacher wrote them up. Or they can say, well, there's this one teacher who gave me a break. I'd much rather they tell that story than, than the other one. So that's, that's the impact I need to have because it's one of the toughest ages. I, 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 can't, I haven't met anyone who said, yeah, I'd love to be a teenager. I'd love to relive all that, you know, the awkwardness and all the, <laughs> the, and the frustration and the SATs. Oh, I can't wait to relive those days. Now, look, do I want to be <laughs> thinner like that and younger like that and healthier like that? <laughs> but I certainly don't want to be the emotional mess that I was as a teenager. So. Yes. Beautiful. So do you, uh, thank you for sharing all this. These are beautiful stories. Uh, do you mentor, do you mentor your students and like, do you mentor them all or do you focus on certain students? How, like, if you would like to share some of your mentoring experience. So I don't really take a position to mentoring students. Uh, just the way our school is set up, it's more, more of a guidance role. Uh, and so you got to be a little bit careful if you don't have the credentials, you got to be a little careful sometimes because just, just the way it is today. However, some students, I have spare copies of uh, What to Do When It's Your Turn, Lynchpin, and Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teenagers. So I, I, I have all these books. So sometimes what I do is uh, I see a student and, and we, we start to have a nice relationship and I say, I have a book for you. And that's where I think the mentoring takes place where you know, read this and, and maybe we can talk about it later. And so that's kind of where the, for the students, however, on the teacher side of things, I started to, I, I asked again, my, my assistant principal Howard, uh, if we could start something with teachers who come on board at school, because we had a mentoring program, but it, it had its ups and downs and everything. But I think what was really needing was something to help people be on board. Our the way our school was set up, there really wasn't anyone who took on that role. So he said, yeah, if you don't mind doing it, I can help you. I can do this. You know, So I said, well, I'd like to. If, and I, I, I came with a flow framework of things, you know, do's and don'ts in the first couple of weeks and all this and how to look at the schedule, just a bunch of stuff that is done, but it's like piecemeal. There isn't one centralized place. And the reason I thought of it to be me is, so last year in April, I, I met you in the podcasting fellowship, right? That's where we, we mm -hmm. met. I learned how to be, you know, about podcasting, but I learned how to be part of a community. Okay. So I brought it to him and I said, well, I'd like to call it the Kushner Onboarding Fellowship, if that's okay, rather than new hires or something. He said, he said, oh, I like that term. So I kind of, I kind of stole it from there. So there's four, there are four new teachers. And so once a week or 
every couple of weeks we would meet and I would run this little uh, session of what's working, what isn't working. And we would share things with new people. I would also bring people in different departments to talk about some things. And it was great. Uh, I'm sure I'll be doing it next year. And they're paying me to do it. But I, Maria, I would do it for nothing because I believe so much in helping people come into a culture. Even if you've taught at school before, our school is a little bit different. And even if you've taught at a yeshiva school, religious school, our school's just a little bit different. And because of that, I just felt it, someone should take charge of that. And so as I've learned, if you're going to go in, you know, pointing out a problem, you better be, you know, armed with a solution because look, they hear problems all day long, the administration. Yeah. yeah what's new? I, it, yeah. We know that's broken. Do you, do you have an idea how to fix it? Because if you don't, it's going to stay broken because we don't got time to fix it right now. Because uh, they wear many hats as well. And so that experience uh, has gotten me a relationship with a, another teacher. It's his first year. And we have that that has been an incredible piece of, of this journey this year because uh, with the quarantine, we actually live close to it. I don't live close to most of the other teachers. And so we meet once a week on Sunday and we just catch up. And again, the impact that I'm probably having on him is much more than I think it is. Because for me, it's an hour a week. We have a nice little chat. And all I do is tell him all the things I've learned freely. And one of the things he expressed to me is, again, he's always worked in an environment where there's this defensive posture that people keep so much to themselves in like a teaching environment because they're afraid to lose their job or they're afraid of this and they're afraid of this. So they don't tell anybody anything that would threaten their position. And I have found the more I give, the less I have to feel threatened by. Because at the end of the day, who are they going to be a little upset with? The guy that, that keeps giving to somebody or the guy that won't tell anybody anything? I think the answer is pretty clear. I'd like to talk about uh, distance learning or, as you uh, said it, emergency learning and teaching. What has been your experience moving your teaching, you know, online. It's been an incredible evolution. So because it's recent, it's pretty fresh in my mind. Uh, on, I think it was March 16th. That was a Friday. Uh, that's when our school decided to get into this, this routine of being online. And I would say some of us knew what to do and many people had no idea what to do because most people had to start to reteach themselves how to learn a Zoom format or how to how to learn a platform to post things online. You know, everyone thinks because, you know, oh, everyone has a computer and knows what to do. No, that's really not the case. So I had a lot of knowledge about Zoom from, we'd used it for the podcast fellowship. So I was familiar with the platform, but I was, I was not a, a host of the meeting. So I didn't know all the controls that, you know, were available to you and, and things like that. Because having the video on, having the microphone off and what, you know, again, my classroom, live classroom, has very little disruption, okay? So I had to learn on Zoom how to create that similar environment. Uh, so learning the ins and outs of that, I had used some online platforms, but I started to, so I made some phone call. So I made a phone call to the Ramsey organization about paying for the online version of what I was doing in person. Uh, and they were generous enough to say, tell you what, because of what's going on, we're just going to give it to you. So everything I could do was online. Okay. So, uh, so within a week that was taken care of, you know, figure out the scheduling, you know, not every class is in person. So some things are just, you know, on a Tuesday, here's an assignment. You learned it Monday, yeah. you should be able to do it Tuesday. So, um, 
And I found that in some classes that wasn't good enough. And so I would actually literally have to be online with them face to face online for almost every class. So again, that changes how you prepare things. And, you know, what I have in my classroom, right on my, my, my desk at school, if I forgot some, I just reach to the left or reach to the right. I pick it up and I start going or at home on my desk at home, I don't have everything at my disposal. So I have to spend hours being ready for anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm being a little dramatic, yes, yes. but, uh, oh, do I have this? Do I have the attendance? Do I have all these things that were just already there? Uh, so each day became, I would say at least an hour of preparation to be online, you know, and that's on top of preparing the actual lesson. So the thing that's hard for me in this process isn't the logistics and the electronics. I'm, I'm getting all that done. I'm posting things there. Yeah, some kids are, they take advantage of the environment just as they would in school where they're not there. They, oh, I forgot and all those things. There's about five of those kids, really. There's not that many. Many of the others you know, are stepping up and dealing with the circumstances. What is difficult for me is when I went into teaching, I didn't realize that I would become someone who develops a relationship with students. And the, the Zoom environment eliminates quite a bit of that. I'll give you an example. So I'm, I'm online, I'm teaching momentum to the physics kids and they're, I am putting my notes up on, on the screen, sharing my screen. So they're taking notes just so they wouldn't in the classroom, but it's dead silent. So that energy of, oh, Mr. Mallets, oh, oh, how about this? How about this? It, it's like in order to get things done, everything has, they have to be muted. And yeah, it's awful. It's in a word, it's just awful. I, 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 yeah. it's, it feels robotic, the nuances of, of having conversations and laughing and all that it just is gone. And that's a piece that I need to develop the relationship I would like to have with the kids. Because I, I don't want to be a substitute for what they can do online. I really don't. I want to enhance what they can do online. You know, the way it's set up now, I, this is not how I want to be teaching people at all. Mm -hmm. I had an, another guest on the podcast earlier who talked about online learning and instructional design and she suggested that they had a, like a Zoom room open and dedicated for the, you know, to the students that they could come in and out and uh, they can like talk about things, but also if they needed, like let's say they had office hours that they say you could be available for 30 minutes after the class or the day after the course, you know, depending on how you plan that and organize it. And maybe you could have a little bit more about uh, this interaction, not in the same dynamic way that you have in the classroom, you know, not exactly this way, but some, but in a different, in a different way that you are not teaching, but you have an opportunity to engage with your students. Yeah. So that sounds like a great idea in my world. If I put my my mind into the student's mind of what's going on, so let's say I have a Zoom class at nine fifteen on Monday morning. So my time with them is now strictly learning online, and no room for for much else, and we just don't have the time. So it has created a little bit of a uh, for them that they don't really want to do it. You know, no, they want to be with Mr. Mallets. They don't want to be on Zoom with Mr. Mallets. You know, that's just not what they want. It's just not what they're used to. And this virtual connection, you know, whether it be with the phone or you know, with, with Zoom, you know, people think it's a substitute, but we all know from all the studies that 
you know, people are flipping through some of this social media, are the loneliest people there are. And, and, and they're, they're hurting. They're not interacting. It gives you the illusion that you're interacting because if it was the same thing, I, I would tell you, oh, I feel like nothing's different from Zoom, but it's substantially different for me. So the idea that it, to me, try to fit this square peg of Zoom into the round hole of, you know, education, you know, face-to-face uh, -face education I'll say is a little bit of an insult to, to what I've done and what I've built as an educator with my kids face-to-face. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we hope and we expect that, uh, you know, schools will open again and you will have your students with you in the classroom. Do you expect that it will be everything the same way it was before COVID or do you anticipate some kind of uh, changes or adjustments based on, you know, experience right now with online uh, and distance learning and teaching? Well, I think it would be naive of me to think that, oh, we'll just go right back to the way it used to be. So uh, just kind of factoring that out for a moment. So then then what's the next question is, well, what do you think it's going to look like? So what I would guess it's going to look like is that we will have smaller class sizes. We might have classrooms spread out, maybe not every, every classroom next to each other. We may not have in-person assemblies with 200 kids. We might have a Zoom assembly. Like they'll just be in my classroom and we'll broadcast from Zoom. So I think there'll be a hybrid of what we have now and what we had before March. So they're going to set down some guidelines and they're going to uh, administratively and they're going to look at their resources and what, what they find is going to uh, work best. And again, I have to make the shift within the culture because what happens I see quite often is when there's a change and it's a significant change that people say, I don't understand why they're changing it. We'll go back to the light switch. I don't understand Coulomb's law and electricity, but you could still use the light switch, right? Okay. So we could try to figure out what all the reasoning or live within the reasoning, live within the things they're asking us to do. And the other thing that has to be really forefront is the, the first time we do it, it might not work. It might just be lousy. Let it be lousy until they see that it's lousy. And give the administration honest and I would say calm feedback about it. Yeah. But I like what you said, Howard. It's, you know, it might work. It might not work. And we will not know how it will work unless we do it. Right. And then we just pause and say, okay, what worked? What didn't work? What do we keep? What do we change? What do we add? Are we willing to do it wrong? Yeah. Just for the sake of finding how to do it right. Yeah. In the current situation, until we move on to whatever is next and we will have to create it, do you have any piece of advice, any words of wisdom to share both with students and with educators? So if my students came to me and said, you know, I don't think this online thing is working. I, don't, I can't do it. I would say uh, it, it might not be working. I, I'd like you to be patient with me because this is new for me too. I'm very transparent in my lessons right now with the, when I try something new, I said, by the way, this is new and it might not work. You know, I sometimes say it, it might just be, it might just suck. Okay. Let me know. And if, if one of you doesn't like it versus 20 of you don't like it, I'll, I'll do something about that. You know, so you know, give me the feedback. 
and I think along the lines of that for the educator side of things is people are probably not going to like this, but that's okay. Uh, you have to factor out your ego and you have to factor out your emotions. This is not about me. This is me trying to show up and help out where I can. And sometimes, you know, when the student doesn't show up or whatever, and you're like, well, you want to send an email, you know, I'm, I'm very upset. You know, you really hurt my feelings for not showing up to class. Well, my kids are 15 years old. They barely care about anybody else's feelings, especially mine. So for me to kind of lay into them with my emotional state, well, I'm the professional. So I'm supposed to lay aside my emotions. My dad used to say, says, look, if you're going to bring your feelings to work, they're just going to get hurt. So don't bring them, leave them in the car. And, uh, you know, same thing online. This is not an environment where they know what to do. In general, teenagers, you know, we put expectations on them. They see, they look like adults. That's part of the problem. So they look like they're grown up, but they're not. They're still a big part of them that's a child. And you have to keep that in mind. And you have to give them some grace and you have to give them some forgiveness, you know, because they don't show up on Zoom with a little name tag that says, my name's Josh and my grandmother's in the hospital. We don't know. We just don't know. So let's let's just err on the side of they're not doing well with this process, especially with because they're used to social uh, social peace as well. And that's been eliminated for many of them, too. So some of the kids who, you know, they're the last one, you know, their brothers, and sisters were, are off to college or working or older. And now they're alone in the house the, every day. They were interacting with their friends and now they're alone in the house. You know, I can't imagine what that must be like for them. So. I have to put myself in their position and say, how would I like to be treated if I was not doing well? Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. My last question, it is not a simple question. It's my favorite. What is one thing you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? The legacy I have right now, if, if something were to happen to me right now, I'm very happy with it. Um, you know, I met my wife... 10 years ago and she had a son from a previous marriage and I was able to develop a relationship with that young man. And so while I'm not his biological father, I think he still thinks of me as his father. And with many of the kids, the comments that they come back to me or when they come back and visit me after they've graduated, I know I've left my mark. So another thing I do is on my email, I have a, uh, a folder that says why I love it here. And each time I get an email from a parent or student administration, something that's very positive about either what I've done or about the school in general. And I put it in there to remind me when things get tough and I get frustrated and it's like, uh, I should just go back to the bench and start testing raw materials or something. And I open up that folder and I probably started it three or four years ago. It has 300 emails in there. The other day, I, I actually made a video for our principal, because he actually made a video for all of us, Teacher Appreciation Week, thanking us. And I actually made a video and showed him that folder in my email and thanking him for creating an environment where I can be the kind of guy that gets emails like that. So maybe that's the mark I want to leave is that Mr. Mounts, you know, creates an environment where a student can be who they need to be in any given moment. Um, you know, that permission, whether they're happy angry, lonely, whatever it is, and just know that there's someone there that 
if you're going to fall, you know that I'm there to catch you in some way. That's the mark that I want to leave. Beautiful. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for uh, being with us and uh, sharing your journey and your experience. And of course, thank you for being a teacher. Thank you. I really had a, uh, it was very enjoyable to take this trip down a little bit of a memory lane and, and kind of see who I've become over the years. So you, you did me a favor by having me here. Thank you. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can also subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.